Welcome to the teaching ministry at Carthus Creek Community Church. Hey, good morning, family. Really glad that you're joining us here this morning. Again, a huge hello to our online audience that's ever-growing. Glad that you're here with us, too. Just a side note before I get going today. Uh, we just saw Ian Miller's testimony at the first 905, and just great news. Two weeks ago, him and his wife both got publicly baptized at the Awakening Service. Isn't that amazing? Uh, so, very good. Uh, really, really exciting. And again, we really would encourage you to come this evening in this, this gathering of worship. Well, we're in this series called Romans, Back to Basics, and we're going to be in chapter 5 today. So if you have your Bible, I'd like you to open it up or, uh, or turn it on, whatever device you use, and we'll, uh, we'll begin together. A few weeks ago, maybe a month and a half ago, I shared publicly with my growing issues with Dora the Explorer. Do you remember this? I continually have issues with this young Latina woman. Uh, she is in my mind, she is in my dreams, she is in my car, she is in my television, she surrounds me as my two daughters continually connect back with her boots and Dora and the large chicken and someone's emailing me, I know, about something, Pico the squirrel, I don't even know about him. Anyway, I, I just, I, I'm starting to have feelings like I did about Barney in the 90s. I want to do bad things, I've admitted that to you. Now, my daughter's birthday party was a few weeks ago, my, my oldest, Hannah's, and Hannah came to Joanna and I, and she, as she's preparing to take over the world, uh, declared this to us. Dad and Mom, I will have a Dora the Explorer birthday party. You can imagine my joy. She said, I will. Now, there are two words that affirm her. It's assurance and certainty. She declared it. And so, yes, it it shall be so, and it was. And so we prepared for Dora the Explorer once again to invade my life and my time. Have you been to a three-year-old birthday party lately? I mean, you were with me, some of you, but uh, we had 18 three-year-olds and 20, yeah, that's, mm-hmm, and 26 parents, pure insanity. So I arrive at the place, my wife has rented, and we're all panicked, there's all this stuff going on, and I walk in and I realize I'm entering into a Dora-like hell. I walk in. As I come in, the music is blaring. All the Dora songs that invade me at 3 o'clock in the morning. There are dolls across this play area. All of them Dora. The napkins are Dora. Boots is there. And then the cake came. And look, let me just show you the cake here. Even the cake. Look at that. Now, I just want to say as a side note, someone in our congregation did this. If you want this, I, 10 bucks, I'll set you up with who did this. You notice Dora's fine? No head off, no pins in any... Fine. Okay. But then something happened. The party was a blast. It was crazy insanity. And then they announced that Dora was actually coming to the party. My nemesis was now coming. I'm surrounded by many of you, and you're watching how I'll react as a pastor. And then there's seekers there, too, so I have to be really careful. So what will I do? Well, I want to say publicly to you, my congregation, that Dora and I are fine. And I have made up with Dora the Explorer, and this is the living proof that I'm good. So just, can you please, there you go. So I just want to say publicly, I'm fine. For you watching online, I'm hugging Dora. There's, yeah, okay. Here's what I thought about at the end of this party. My daughter comes to, you can take that down now. There are limits. <laughs> Thank you. Take it down, please. 
Mary Lynn, are you here? I need help afterwards. Seriously, oh man, nice. I was thinking about my, my daughter and those two words, assurance and confidence. And she came and she declared it. See, she had an old understanding of hope. See, hope used to mean in the English language, assurance. It will happen. It was certainty. She just declared it and she knew it would happen. But hope doesn't mean that anymore in our culture. Hope has changed. The English language may have not changed, but the inference has changed. Hope now means, well, I hope it happens. It's wishful thinking. It's crossing our fingers. We're, we're wondering maybe if it will happen, but it probably will not. Hope no longer has power because it no longer has certainty and assurance. And as I reflected on my young daughter in this party, I was once again struck that all the time I and you talk about hope being the only thing that will help us through this life. And then I realized that when we use that word, we're using the new version, not the old version. And because of that, many of us are going, well, I think my faith will help me through. And the certainty and assurance that's connected with hope is being lost. Paul, in Romans chapter 5, where we're going to explore today, comes with the original understanding of hope, that it will happen, it is certain, it is assurance. He is going to point us to something that is true in the past, in the present, in the future. And it is that hope that is fundamental as we move forward. We need to have the certainty that my, my young daughter had on much grander things. And so we come to chapter 5. And if there's one emotion that could summarize this passage, it wouldn't be anger or sadness or happiness or even joy. It would be the experience of relief. From chapter 1 to the middle of chapter 3, God, through his word, has challenged us and shown us in stark detail who we are and what we really are before him. Our souls have been agitated by new or confirmed knowledge that the wrath of God actually is on all of us and our sin. And even more scary is that Paul has revealed to us that we have an inability we cannot overcome. We have an inability to deal with our bondage to sin and the demonic, let alone overcome death itself. But God did not leave us to our own devices. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That does not need to be the end of our stories if we don't want it to be. You see, Paul started in the beginning of Romans 1 by saying the gospel, the good news of Jesus, real hope, heaven's power itself has both overcome deserved wrath and our sin. And as we heard last week and the week before with Dave, what good news and great joy for all of us. Salvation is not transferred. It's, it's transferred, not bought. Salvation is free, not earned. Salvation is a display of love. It's not about duty. And salvation then becomes a declaration of faith. And when and if you embrace Jesus, all the metaphors Paul has been using and will use today in chapter 5 become our reality, our hope. The law court where we're all declared guilty before God becomes the place where we are put in right standing. It's what we call justified. In the world which truly is one large spiritual slave market, we get bought back. The word is redeemed. When we face God himself at death or when he returns, we will be covered at the altar by Jesus, who is our high priest, we've learned, our mercy seat, our sacrifice, and our scapegoat. This is what has been done by Jesus for us. He has pardoned us, he has liberated us, and he has filled the gap for us. But Paul understands something. 
Paul, knowing that we need to see more and understand more, answers now the next question for many of us walking on our journey. Okay, God, now what? Yes, God, you've done so much for me, but what do I do today or next week? Yes, we have peace with God, Paul tells us, but you don't just wait till heaven and live a boring, religious, no life change, no hope life. He says it needs to get better. It can get better. An ever-changing person you can become. You see, you can be a person of thankfulness in an unthankful world. You can be a person that lives in genuine awe when no one has any awe left because supposedly we've done it all. We can be an ever-changing person that begins to reflect the Jesus we've encountered. We are commissioned and called to become like Jesus in the gray and every darkening world that we live in. And so we come to chapter 5. Finally, in many of our minds, it looks like a decisive turn. A turn. We have now, we have now uh, come to the place where Paul says to us, we have peace and grace to live a new life. Really, it's this way. Chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8 are about certainty and assurance. Jesus' work expressed in justification, yes, will lead to final salvation. But as we wait, God has given us, he's about to declare, listen, a new power, a power who is God himself, which will help us in our battle with law and sin. Paul starts the conversation by saying this, hear the word of God. Romans 5.1, therefore, therefore, since I've written chapter 1 through 4, therefore, he says, since we've been justified through faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, since we've been justified, notice he says, we have been. We already possess the work of God on our behalf, which is justification through faith. As I shared a few weeks ago, justification is one of those words every one of us should know well. It means we are in good standing. We have been made righteous. We are acquitted. We are found guilty by a holy God, but that same holy God, by the work of Jesus, declares us not guilty. We are put into right relationship with God, and all of our sins, past, present, future, are accounted for, dealt with, and permanently removed. And the result is, he says, and hear this today, we have peace with God. The word peace is so easily said in our culture. It's asked for, it's declared, and it's rarely found. It's sung about, it's written about, it's planned for, but rarely does it happen in our world. Just look at your family. Look at your thought life. Look at our culture. Why does the UN need to exist? Because we never truly in the end can come to a place of peace. And what's the opposite of peace? We know it well. Uproar, war, carnage, brokenness. Is this not actually what Paul has declared already over us? Is this actually not what we are before God as we have not met Jesus? He put it in this way in Colossians 1. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But if you're a Christian, he then declares to us, but you're no longer an enemy. You now have peace. See, it's utterly impossible to experience true inner peace by our own power because God was not at peace with us and he was not in us giving us peace. Peace means so much more than the absence of hostility. It comes from the old idea or the Old Testament idea of shalom. It covers wholeness, well-being, prosperity, security, friendship, and salvation. It's about justice. It's about universal healing. It's about reconciliation between God humanity, and then eventually all of creation. 
This peace is experienced, though, in our time, in the now, when person by person submits to Jesus as Savior and Lord, and they become the place, listen, where the kingdom of God is accepted. That is where the reign and rule of God is experienced and welcomed. And one day, the scriptures tell us, that this peace will fill the universe, and all of reality finally will be at peace like it was in Eden. That's why when Jesus was born, on that very first Christmas night, the angels broke out and said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And notice again what Paul says to us this day at this moment. Not only are we justified now, he says we also have peace now. It's a now and a future thing. But Paul goes so much farther than that. Look at verse 2. Through whom we have gained access by faith into grace in which now we stand. Gained access literally means introduction. In a secular sense, it was the idea that you had the opportunity to be ushered into the presence of the court of a king. And you would be announced. You've seen that in the movies. Which implies you have the right not only to look upon the king, you have the right to speak to the king. This is our standing with the living God. Yet the roots of this introduction go far, far back into the Old Testament. One summarized it this way, and we need to get this today because we will never, ever understand. We will take for granted our access if we don't get this. One said it this way. For Jews, the idea of having direct access to God or introduction, ready, was unthinkable because to see God face to face was to die. When God gave his law to Israel at Sinai, he said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and will, be, will believe in you forever. But after the people had cleansed themselves according to his instruction, the Lord then came down Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, and he said, Warn the people, lest they break through to look upon me, and many of them will die. Even after that, the tabernacle was built, then the temple, and strict boundaries were always set. Non-Jews were only allowed in one court, and then women could go a little bit closer in the court of the women, and then there was a men's court, and then the, the, the priests could go closer. Each group could get closer and closer to God's divine presence, but no one could enter it directly. Only once a year could a high priest actually enter and briefly and even he could lose his life if he walked in unworthily. Bells were actually sewn on his garment. And if he actually died, they'd stop. They'd listen. The bell's no longer ringing. They could pull him out because he'd been struck dead by a holy God. But Christ's death, this person writes, ends all of this. Through his sacrifice, he made God the Father accessible to any of us. Jew, non-Jew, any of us who trust in Jesus. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You're saying, well, why are you saying all this? It's simple. We actually get to talk to God. We get a continuous introduction because of grace, that unsought, undeserved, unconditional love of God. And that is where we now stand, it says. You know that little phrase, now where we stand? It's important for many of you that struggle with wondering if you lose your salvation. When we stand in Greek is something permanent, immovable. This has the idea that once you are in that position, it will never be taken away because it was never earned by you in the first place. 
It was given to you by grace. He says that we have a constant access. We are in a constant state of grace. And what should our response be, Paul says? Well, what should mark us? He says in verse 2 also, And we boast in the hope of a glory of God. Boast, by the way, means rejoice, jubilation, to shout about it, taking confidence in what has been done for us and what is going to be done for us. Now, I was trying to think of an image of this. Did anyone watch Oprah's this week? Yeah, you don't want to admit it, you did. I'm talking about the special things. What does she call it? Her favorite things. Raise your hand if you watched it. Uh-huh, okay. You know those people, the crazy people that scream and cry because they're getting everything on earth? That is what this is talking about. When is the last time, I don't care your cultural background, when was the last time you've really rejoiced because you're a Christian? You've, you've screamed, you've cried, you've, you've been elated because actually, who cares that someone else is getting a free cruise? You've got eternity. That is what he's saying. That we have to be people that rejoice because we have something that the world can never produce. And what a stark contrast that brings, actually, to the rest of the human family. Other worldviews and and other religions. One said Eastern religions offer no hope with their endless cycle of reincarnation. Existentialists just see the future as absurd. Atheistic evolutionists have no comfort or no hope at all. But we as Christians, he declares, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Paul has brought us in chapter 5 to comfort, rejoicing, hope, and certainty. But then he knows what we're going to ask next. He says, but how do I have that while I still have to live my life? Thinking on what Paul's response would be, one person wrote, having ministered to people for so many years, Paul knows that many will react with this amazing group of blessings in one of two ways. Some of us will think he's promising believers a trouble-free existence, suggesting life will be a bed of roses, and and we belong to God and everything's going to be great. Others who have been Christians for a long time know that suffering does not end with the conversation and the conversion, and may dismiss Paul as an unrealistic utopian dreamer. Well, Paul, at this moment, takes the offensive. He says, yes, yes, you will continue to suffer despite all these amazing blessings. Life's difficulties, though, listen closely, do not contradict what I've been saying about the wonderful blessings we have as a Christian. In fact, he's about to say, God takes them and uses them to bring greater blessing. Verse 3 is one of those difficult verses, but very helpful. Not only so, he says, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering will produce perseverance. He says, we also rejoice. We also glory in suffering. Suffering, by the way, means tribulation, distress, hostility, affliction, oppression. It comes from the idea of a grape or an olive being crushed to get its juice extracted. Your suffering could be financial. Your suffering could be professional. Your suffering could be relational, psychological, spiritual, physical. It means all of that. But this is what Paul teaches us this morning, whether we like it or not. Suffering, he says, is the path to strong spiritual maturity and glory. Just read your Bible carefully. Abraham with Isaac. Jacob battling it out with God. Joseph in prison and hated by his family for just telling them what God had told him. Moses with Pharaoh, David and his songs in the night. Peter ends up denying Jesus just before he's murdered. All the apostles are murdered for their faith in Jesus, except John, but he ends up being exiled in Patmos. 
And then don't forget, we're Christians, right? Think about our symbol. Jesus ends up on the cross, and he's God. Suffering, Paul says, will produce the most needed thing, especially for the Christian movement in the West. Perseverance, verse 4, character, and hope. Perseverance means steadfastness, steadfastness, fortitude, heroic endurance. It's staying power. As I've preached before, we cry out as Christians at Crothers Creek, Oh God, God, I want to know you. I want to be a real follower. I, I want a, a deep faith. I want to be like those other people I watch who so obviously know God. And God says to us, Really? You truly want to become like this? Then the testing will come and your roots will grow deep. But as I've said before, it is right there in the crux, in in the pressure that so many people abandon Jesus and the church. They blame the church. They blame God. They blame themselves. They blame others. And they and many of us miss that the crisis was the very answer to our prayer. It is the place of deepening. God uses the fallenness of our world, the falseness of our world, the brokenness of our lives to produce good things, perseverance, character, and hope. Character is love. It's joy. It's peace. It's patience. It's kindness. It's goodness. It's faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Hope is assurance. But then we sit back and many of us, if we're honest, cry out to God. I know I read that in my Bible, but I look at my life honestly, like right now, And they look so completely different. John, I've done the church thing for years. Why doesn't my, uh, my life ever look like what I read about in the Bible? Life is hard. We know what God has done for us, and we know that we have a bright future. But there's so little victory. Why does the church not look different than the world, we ask? Paul then turns at this moment with all of his pastoral insight and might and cries out to Christians, listen, in every time period, that would ever read his writings and says these words, verse 5, hear them. Hope does not put us to shame, but God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He starts by reminding us that hope will not disappoint us. One, uh, One says this, our claim that Christ will rescue us from God's wrath someday will be vindicated. God will do what he has promised. This is not a jump in the dark. This is not the crossing of fingers. Why? Because as Jesus was risen from the dead, we will be too. Our hope and our future is secure. We are not left alone in this time with no hope. Amen? But there's more. Then Paul says this, God's love has been poured into our hearts That idea of pouring is the same language used in Acts 2 when the Spirit of God was poured out on the first gathering of Christians just like us, which resulted in the birth of the church, 3,000 meeting Jesus at once, and the famous outline of Acts 2, 42 through 47 that has become the blueprint for every Bible-believing church, no matter background or culture or denomination. Paul says to you this morning, the Spirit of God has been given to you. The Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity, the same spirit that empowered Jesus at his baptism, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, the same spirit that came on the church, the same spirit that gives spiritual gifts, the same spirit that produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We are given the spirit of God so we have assurance in our faith. We are given the spirit of God for one other thing though, 
power. Power to know love. Power to say no to sin. Power to see the law in context. Power to live a godly life. So many of us at Crothers Creek do not have victory over sin. Do not have his will in our life. Do not hear him clearly. Do not understand why he's trying to do what he's doing in our church. Because we never have come to the position where we understand that the Spirit of God is the only one that can help us live the life we're called to. Think about this. Many of us became Christians and said, I'm in, heaven's coming, and now I have to pull up my bootstraps in the in-between. No! The Spirit of God is given to us as Christians so we can live a godly life. If salvation does not depend on our own work, why would our righteousness in this life depend on our own work? The Spirit of God is given to us so we can actually not only survive, but live an honest, authentic Christian life between our history and our bright future. Here's the question. Why don't many of you ever talk or pray to the Holy Spirit? He is the only one who will make you like Jesus. He is the only one who will let you do what you want to do and you cannot do and you're desperate for. Paul reminds us here, That we're given the Spirit of God because we've been justified and because we will be reconciled. But in the in-between, we need a power that's beyond ourselves. And then at this moment, Paul suddenly turns the cards. He he changes our direction just for a moment because he wants us again to realize that the love of God is so huge and deep and wide. And that's why he says in verse 6, you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were powerless to escape from sin, powerless to escape death, powerless to deal with Satan, powerless to please God in any way, God amazingly sent his son to die on our behalf. Like I've preached, we are under the dynamic of sin, under the power of sin. We're controlled by sin. All of us have sinned, all condemned, all under the wrath of God. All of us have a heart of sin, religious and unreligious, babies, children, teens, young adults, adults, those about to die and those being born. All of us are this. And then he says, not only are we powerless, then he says, we're also ungodly. Ungodly is an interesting word. It simply means people that refuse to worship God and in the end act like God themselves. He says, the human condition is powerless and ungodly, and yet in this state, Christ died for us. Hear this this morning again. Christ died for us. This is the place where heaven and earth met. Every Good Friday, millions of us will gather to grieve, to mourn, to look at horror in horror, which will lead, of course, to wonder. Many Christians in other nations in different centuries have dealt with this day better than many of us. We live it in an instant fix-it culture. We spend billions of dollars on staying young and avoiding death, and we live with accessible funds, and we have resources to deal with sickness like no time in history. But unlike most of the world, we have not experienced death on a mass scale. We've not experienced war, most of us, or torture. But our most holy faith, Paul reminds us here, is grounded in that blackness. The one we love The God we worship stops us and makes us face this reality and calls us beyond insulation and security to glimpse at the horror, which in the end, of course, will provide salvation, hope, forgiveness, power to overcome all the things we face. But unlike what so many thought back then, Jesus' death was not a mistake. 
It wasn't a political act. It was not religious leaders of their day finally getting their due, nor was it the kingdom of darkness finally overcoming their creator because he had introduced a more powerful kingdom in opposition to theirs. Out of all of that chaos, hear me this morning, this was being used by God to sovereignly accomplish his love for us. That while we were powerless and ungodly, the Father and the Son and the Spirit who was forever pleased was coming back to get us home. That is what Paul reminds us love is. Jesus said this in John 10 to his best friend. The reason my Father loves me is I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. Paul continues reminding us of his love, our God's love for us in verse 7. Very rarely, he says, will anyone die for a righteous person. Though a good person might die, possibly die for someone, but, but God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the awesome, awesome quality of God's love. While we were still God-hating people, God came for us. Paul continues in verse 9 and says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Now we're in right standing, he says, with Jesus' work. We will be saved from God's wrath when we face him in the end. When we face a holy God alone, have you reflected on that lately? Every one of us one day will face him alone. He says, when we face him alone, and God the Father will review our life, which he talks very clearly about in Scripture. The amazing thing is he will look on the work of Jesus over us, in us, and on us. And he says, my wrath is no longer on you. Paul is teaching us here this morning that we are saved, we were being saved, and we will be saved. Salvation is a continuum that's continually happening. Happening. Paul ends this small section in chapter 5, and I love Paul, and I love Scripture because it pulls no punches. He ends this section with these amazing words for us. In two verses, he summarizes everything that's our history. For if, he says in verse 10, well, we were God's enemies, we were reconciled back to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through Jesus' life? Not only this, but, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through, we, through whom we now have rec- rec- reconciliation. You know, Paul uses two words throughout this whole thing that are so important. The word justify is an outward thing. It's a legal thing. It's a right standing thing. Reconciliation is a relational thing. We live in a world that's unreconciled. I was sailing with someone this week who was a, a refugee to Canada from the Congo, and he was telling me his story, how his father and mother were murdered, and, and, and he was talking about deep divisions even today in that land. And he was sharing with me, interestingly too, that the, the tribalism is far from God, gone, and, and, and tribalism is driving uh, so much violence. And he says, what's amazing, since I've become a Christian, he, he, he was about to take his own life in Kenya, and 16 Canadians who are Christians showed up at the refugee camp and led him to Christ. Isn't that amazing? And then he immigrated to Canada to Saskatchewan. Oh. <laughs> I just smiled at him. It's like, wow, Congo, Kenya, Saskatchewan. Wow. Anyway. Uh, but as I was talking to him, he said, what's amazing is my mom and dad were from separate tribes. 
And uh, I want to go back and show people, because I'm no longer uh, from either tribe, I'm from both, that reconciliation is possible through Jesus. Hmm. Paul says we are justified. And Paul says we are reconciled. You know, it's interesting, as we come to these passages, we really do genuinely need to wrestle Let me just take a few minutes to end with some reflections, I think, for our community today. And this is, by the way, when you need to focus more, not less. (laughs) If you have not met Jesus, I need to speak to you very directly as one of his servants this morning. This is God's word to you, whether you're here or online or listening. He says, whether you like it or not, you are powerless. You are ungodly, you are a sinner, and you're an enemy of God. That is your standing before him. But despite this, He genuinely, deeply loves you. He loves you so much, he wants to know you, walk with you, and be with you. God's love is totally unmotivated by anything you could do for him. God's love is towards you. These words of God are spoken over you. While you still are a sinner, Christ has died for you. God has demonstrated his love for you. While you still are an enemy right now, he wants to reconcile you to him through the death of his son. He wants to save you, free you, give you assurance and confidence in this life and the life to come. Would you not come, he says this morning, bend your knee, meet life, gain salvation, and find eternal life. That is what God says to you. And I'm just going to take a moment. I don't usually do this, but I'm going to take a moment. And if that is you, and you want to meet life itself, pray this prayer. And community, this is when you need to pray that eyes are open. So just let's do this. If this is you, just pray this. That's me, God. I've spent my whole life fighting you, and I'm done. I admit I'm an enemy of my behavior. I admit I'm a sinner. I admit I'm separated. I admit I'm ungodly. I've tried living my life by my terms, and I'm done. I turn to you, Jesus, and I ask you to reconcile me to justify me. I want to know you and be in good standing. And I want you to give me life. I turn from sin. I know you died for me. And I now say, come into my heart and change me. That Holy Spirit that John talked about, I want him in my life now. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer, it is imperative that you tell the person you came with or tell me or someone else because you have just moved into a friendship with God which will change the whole reality that you know. And by the way, welcome to the family. It's a good thing. A few other things to share with us as a community, though. We need to be honest today about our suffering. This passage is important for many of us as Christians at Crothers. Suffering is a normal part of the Christian life community. And God will use them to accomplish his work and purpose in our life. But don't misunderstand what Paul and I are saying to you. As one said, we must never praise God or rejoice in the evil things we're going through. They are not part of God's original creation, and he's going to eradicate them one day. Paul calls on us to rejoice in the midst of our afflictions and rejoice over our afflictions. But he does not ask us to be joyful about the affliction itself. No one should ever say, praise God, I have cancer. No one should ever say, praise God, uh, someone's died. That, that is not what Paul is saying. He's saying it's through those situations we are changed. I want you to be honest this morning before God. I want you to think about the trials in your life. Is it sickness? Is it death of a loved one? 
Is it the loss of a job? Is it a loss of a marriage? Don't you have enough money? Maybe you have a child that's walked away from Jesus. Is it aging parents? Is it midlife crisis? Do you feel disconnected in church? Is there no spark in your love for God anymore? Is it an ongoing sin you've never overcome? Is it the demonic? Are you attacked for your faith? Do you have mental illness? I mean, the list goes on. Have, have you actually been let down by those you looked up to? Is it family issues that just won't go away? Is it the world we live in? Is it news? Is it fear? Is it old age? I mean, the list goes on. What is it? This is a profound moment for many of you. Don't miss this. Jesus, by his Spirit, comes to you this morning and says, hmm, I want to use these terrible things to give you hope, perseverance, and character that will never be produced anywhere else. Many and many of us are looking continually at the suffering, and we have to raise our eyes up. I know this sounds churchy, but it's true. Back up to Jesus and say, I'm going to surrender these things back to you so I will have hope, assurance. I will have character. I will have perseverance. I want to be the Christian that ends the race well. And so here's what I want you to do. I'm going to ask you to pray again. If you are one of those suffering Christians, no matter what you are, I'm going to ask you to give those back to God so he can produce those three things in you. If you want an authentic Christian life, suffering is part of it. Don't ever listen to those pastors who say all the suffering leaves when Jesus moves in. They're wrong. Pray this prayer with me if that's you. Jesus, home, I'm done. All this stuff I'm carrying around, it's just, I feel overwhelmed all the time. But I want to do this because Scripture is clear. I would like to give these back to you. And I pray out of these very difficult circumstances that you know about. I've talked to you about it, God. I pray for hope I don't have. I pray for character I don't have. I mean, I I, I pray for this, Lord. And I pray for perseverance. I pray for perseverance. I pray that these three things would mark my life so when I face you, you actually will say to me, well done. But I need you to give me the power to do this because I can't do it anymore. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. Two last things. Sorry, there's lots to cover today in Romans 5. I need to talk to us about the Holy Spirit for a moment. And I just ask you these simple questions. Do you want faith as a Christian? Do you want rejoicing in your suffering? Do you want to be able to say no to sin? And yes, to Jesus. Do you want victory? Do you want to know with assurance and confidence you really are a child of God? Then ask the Holy Spirit. So rarely do we pray to him. Rarely, when we are tempted to sin, do we actually at that moment say out loud, Holy Spirit, come upon me and help me say no. If Jesus was empowered, think about this, by the Holy Spirit, if the church was birthed by the Holy Spirit, if all great preaching and healing was done by His power, then why would we not be calling on Him on a regular basis? Why would we not ask for the cloud, the dove, fire from on high, to actually give us the ability to live this Christian life between our past and our bright future? Don't forget, Paul says, God's love is fully expressed, not just at the cross, but by giving us the Holy Spirit of God. We as a community need to understand this. This is a teaching moment. 
The Spirit of the living God is the one who makes us like Jesus, confirms we're in Jesus, and one day will usher us into Jesus' presence. I exhort you as your pastor, start asking for the power of God in every area you struggle and question and doubt with and watch Him show up. Do not fear Him. He is God and He will do what needs to be done for His glory and our freedom. This is what we need to understand. The Spirit of God is the greatest resource to our Christian life. He's the one who enlivens the Scriptures to us. He's the one who allows you and gives you the ability to forgive a Christian when they sin against you. He is the one who will give you the power to say no to sin that you love to do. He is the one who will give you words when you witness. He is the one who will allow you to lay hands on someone who's sick and see them well. This is what the Spirit of God does. How in the world do we think we could live the Christian life without Him? him. He is not an abstract. He is not an energy. He is not something we just theologically talk about. He is God's gift to us. That is God's love poured out to us. I exhort you, call on the power of God in a way you never have before, and you will see transformation. The Spirit of God is the one who prompts you to faith. The Spirit of God will be the one who allows you to suffer and have hope. The Spirit of God will be the one that empowers you also, and I end with this, to have assurance and confidence. Have you listened closely today what God has said over you? Two weeks ago, I declared to you that phrase, but now you are. Again in chapter 5, time and time again, Paul outlines what your identity really is. He says you have peace with God now. We are justified now. We are loved now. We have been given the Spirit of God now. We are reconciled right now. We have access to grace. We have constant access to God. We are in a constant state of grace. We may fall into sin, but they are never more powerful than the work of the cross of Christ. That's why Jesus died. Our salvation can never be rescinded or changed. We will never, the Bible says, be put to shame. Our hope is in the glory of God. We can have joy in suffering. God's love is given for us. Jesus' work releases us from any uncertainty or fear about that coming judgment. Charles Hodge, one of the great Reformed theologians, said this so long ago, and I end with these words. If God loved us because we loved him, He would love us only as long as we loved him. And on that condition, our salvation would depend on the consistency of our own treacherous hearts. But as God loved us as sinners, as Christ died for us who were ungodly, our salvation depends, as Paul says, not on our loveliness, but on the consistency of the love of God. Paul comes, the Spirit of God comes, the Word of God is given, and says to some of you this morning, it is time to meet me. To many of you, he says, it is time to give over your suffering. They may not be removed, but it's time to give them over so I can produce things in you you've asked for for years. He comes to all of us this morning and says, ask for my Spirit to produce the Christ-like qualities and realities we need, not only to live a Christian life, but to do church, to do kingdom stuff, And he says to all of you today at this moment, be assured, have confidence. Our hope is not invented. Our hope is not wishful thinking. Our hope is we are in right standing with God and one day his wrath will never be on us ever again. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for these powerful words. 
And I pray that this church and myself and all of us as a community will be ground more and more in this truth. We pray, Lord, that there would be life change among us, that there would be hope among us. We pray for people around us who have not connected with you yet, and we pray you'd connect with them. We pray, Lord, for us who are suffering, that you'd produce something that's never been there. Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this church and ask for your, you know, the Father's will to be done. And we do ask, God, for more assurance, more confidence, and more of our identity being built out of Scripture. Just do what you need to do. We ask this in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, carotherscreek.ca.